Got to remember to do that. It's one of those new preacher moments right there. As you may have figured out from the slide on behind me, uh, we're going to be continuing our series on the book of Philippians this morning. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. When we have whole services given over to the communion, uh, or when we worship the Lord through the communion service and the Lord's table, there are different ways we're going to be able to do that in the next many years that I'm here. Sometimes we'll devote the entire service to the Lord's table, and I'll preach from a text that will specifically address uh, the table and our approach to the Lord uh, through that means of worship. Uh, Other times, I'll just continue the series uh, that I'm preaching on and make application to it throughout. And so uh, today, uh, we're going to be just continuing right along in the book of Philippians. Um, And I wanted to let you know that in case you do like handouts, I've I've heard from several of you who said that you do follow that way and take notes. There is a handout in the bulletin that you can uh, look through or fill in some blanks. I'm not really much of a blank guy, to be honest with you. Sometimes I get so heated up, I forget to fill in the blank. Um, So hopefully that's not the case today, and uh, you'll be able to follow right along uh, with the sermon. And, And my point in preaching a message is not for you to remember my outline. My outlines are nothing spectacular. I often say I think my outlines normally, any, any person could produce these outlines if they have an open Bible. Because that's what I'm striving for. I don't care if you know my outline, I want you to know the text that we're proclaiming that morning or that evening. Okay, so if you miss a blank, who cares? Uh, do you understand what these verses are saying? Okay, but I know it is a means for some of us to follow along, and so I Uh, We'll try to keep producing those for you. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, uh, Paul turns his attention to another way that the believer's mindset is to be centered or focused on the gospel. Uh, We learned uh, the last few weeks that one of the ways we are to do this is by being committed to our partners in the gospel, or our partnership or fellowship in the gospel. Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 through 11. But in verse 12, in my opinion, Paul turns his attention from our partners in the gospel to the commitment that believers should have for the advance of the gospel. Matter of fact, if you look down at verse 12 in your Bible, you'll see those exact words. The advance, or to advance the gospel at the end of that verse. See, anyone could produce these outlines. Our commitment to advance the gospel must also be there for believers. And specifically, in verses 12 through 26, Paul explores three ways that the gospel can be advanced in a believer's life, or through a believer's life, through affliction, through their death, and through their continued life. The first of these experiences is affliction, and that's what we're going to look at this morning in verses 12 through 18. I'm sure the Philippians probably had many questions for the Apostle Paul. It had been some times that they had seen them. Perhaps they'd heard rumblings about the fact that he was incarcerated in Jerusalem and then again in Rome. And so they probably had questions. Remember, they sent Epaphroditus to discover or discern how Paul was doing. But instead of Paul taking a lot of time at the beginning of this book to focus in on all of the different circumstances that he was experiencing, he actually shifts the attention to the gospel And in particular, he informs the Philippian congregation of how God was using all of the events and circumstances in his life to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel had been advanced in three ways 
through his affliction. And these three ways form three points for our sermon this morning, and they form valuable lessons for us as New Testament believers. I think all three of my points this morning, which come right from the text of Scripture, answer this question. The question is, how can my affliction be used by God to advance the gospel? That's the question we're addressing and that this text addresses through Paul's personal testimony. And so the the first point is this. First, our affliction can create great, greater exposure for evangelism, verses 12 and 13. Our affliction can create greater exposure for evangelism. I'm sure it'd be normal for these people to associate Paul's chains and his imprisonment with the power of the Roman government, or Caesar. Paul's in prison in his own house, and that's a sign or tribute to Caesar's power. See how far it extends? Uh, But Paul's perspective is that God is using this imprisonment to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if anyone could understand how God might use imprisonment, it should be the church of Philippi. As uh, I, I just imagine, as this letter would be read aloud to the churches of Philippi, at least one man and his entire household, hearing about Paul's faithfulness in prison and it resonating with them. Remember Acts 16? Some of the people who were some of the first converts of Philippi were the Philippian jailer and his household. So I can almost imagine, maybe it's too much sanctified imagination, this jailer almost smiling as he hears about Paul's fortitude and faithfulness in prison. But things are a bit different now for him. He's no longer in Philippi. It's not just a night or two in prison. Paul's incarceration in Rome actually started years before in Jerusalem. We won't take the time to go back to the book of Acts, but you can find out that Paul was in, uh, in prison in this experience, this trial, this affliction, for approximately four years. It starts in Jerusalem, it journeys to Rome, there's a shipwreck, but then he finally gets to Rome, and then he's in Rome in prison in his own house for two additional years. So in total, at least four years of Paul's life is spent in this great affliction. Yet Paul remains steadfast in his commitments and proclaims that God is at work in his imprisonment. And he begins to show us how in verse 13. So look in your Bible at verse 12, then we'll get down into verse 13. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This is how. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. God was advancing the gospel by making Paul's imprisonment known to two groups of people. See that in your Bible, verse 13? To the whole imperial guard and all the rest. Okay. First of all, I'll talk about that all the rest for just a quick moment. All the rest, it's a very broad term. I think that's Paul's way of saying that most of the city of Rome, if not all of Rome, had become aware that his imprisonment was for Jesus Christ. 
He says, all the rest, I think he might be describing the citizens of of Rome. All the rest. They know that I'm in prison and I'm not just here because I'm a criminal. I'm here for Christ. Because of Christ. But then he gives this other description right before that. He says, and my imprisonment has been made known to the whole imperial guard. Okay. And in your notes, I I want to talk about the the idea of the imperial guard or the word that stands behind that. This is the word praetorian. Praetorian has four possible meanings. You have four bullet points here. You just fill these in real quick or quickly. At times, the word praetorian could be used of the general headquarters of a Roman army. General headquarters of a Roman army. This would be like a tent-like structure or building that they would have when they would be engaging in battle. But we don't think Paul's there. He's not there in prison. Uh, and so we, we dismiss that one. Where praetorian can also be used of the estate of a wealthy landowner. But again, I don't think Paul is there. I mean, if you compare uh, that idea or that concept with what we know of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, the four prison epistles that Paul writes during this era, and Acts 28, it doesn't seem that he's in the estate of a wealthy landowner. The third possibility is that praetorian was used at times in literature to describe the official residence or palace of the Roman Caesar, Emperor Caesar. Again, I would say it doesn't appear that this is the best. But uh, finally, the word could be used to describe a group of people instead of a physical location. And that's how the ESV has translated this word, praetorian. They've translated the imperial guard. And so the praetorian was an elite group of Roman soldiers called the praetorian guard. And I think this is probably the best understanding of this word. The Praetorian Guard was a group of about uh, nine or 10,000 soldiers who were handpicked by Caesar to serve in Roman government. They served for 15 years. Praetorian Guard, these, these were all Italian men who would be paid double for their service. In particular, while they might have many duties, two of them kind of rose to the the top for the Praetorian Guard, one of their duties would be is they would provide protection for the Roman emperor himself and make sure nothing happened to him. Outside of that, one of their other outstanding duties, if you read in, in secular literature here, was that they were to keep watch over some of the most infamous prisoners of the Roman Empire. Normally, these soldiers would chain themselves to the prisoner with a short chain called an halasis, which was 18 inches to 36 inches long with a shackle on both sides. They would chain themselves to the prisoner with this 36-inch chain, and they would rotate shifts about every four hours or so. So in my mind, what's going on in verse 13, if we understand that history, is that This text reveals that God had a very special object for evangelism in the city of Rome. In other words, these men were the object of Paul's evangelistic campaign in the city of Rome. Now, we don't know why God did this, 
and why he specifically chose these praetorian guards or soldiers to be the object of Paul's evangelization in Rome. But it does help to explain other things in the text. Like when you go to Philippians 4 and verse 22, just flip one page in your Bible, and Paul is going through all these final greetings to the church of Philippi, and he says, verse 21, 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those who are of Caesar's household. It appears that some of these soldiers who are of Caesar's household came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as Paul writes this letter to the church of Philippians, he sends greetings from these people of Caesar's household. For two years, these men would watch Paul as he would entertain visitors and tell them how God was using his affliction to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine spending two years chained to an apostle. You think you'd learn anything? Do you think Paul ever prayed during those two years? I'm sure daily Paul prayed for the souls of men and women. And all along the way, at the end of the chain, was a soul for whom Christ died. Imagine these soldiers as they would hear Paul read the scriptures. Or, and this is my favorite, watch him as he would write Holy Spirit-inspired letters. How cool. You see, for Paul, it was not evangelism in spite of his chain, but it was evangelism because of it. And the guard at the end of the chain represented a soul for whom Christ died. And he used his affliction to produce greater exposure for evangelism. So I ask you in a moment of application, what is your affliction? Perhaps you're facing something as significant as great sickness or a medical battle or severe depression. And I say very kindly and graciously to you as a shepherding pastor, God wants to use your affliction to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe we should remember that the doctor or the nurse at the end of the bed represents a soul for whom Christ died. You think about those experiences, you would have probably never met that doctor. You would never met that nursing staff. But through your affliction, God is giving you greater exposure for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps someone you love and care for is, en- is enduring a prolonged battle with illness or disability. It's my prayer this week that you, brother or sister, you too would remember that this cancer, this Parkinson's, this MS, this whatever ailment it is, is increasing your and his or her network for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps it's something as simple as experiencing vehicle troubles. Maybe you had a good week with your car this week, but maybe God's just preparing you for like this really bad week. And you'd be stranded alongside the road, and now you're interacting with complete strangers. Perhaps at those moments, we need to stop and we need to think from God's perspective of the fact that the guy underneath the hood who's volunteering to help us and serve us represents a soul for whom Christ died. Our affliction can create greater exposure for evangelism.
And men and women, may God give us eyes for the gospel, even when we're experiencing great personal suffering. Affliction can create greater exposure for evangelism, but number two, it can also create increased efforts in it. Verses 14 through 17. Now, Paul could have feared that believers would be intimidated by the harsh treatment that he was experiencing in Rome, but the exact opposite was true. Instead of people in Rome being intimidated and not saying anything, don't say anything about Jesus, we're going to get thrown into prison too. Instead of that, believers were rising up and speaking boldly for Christ. Look at verse 14 in your Bible, Philippians 1, 14. It says, and most of the brothers, having having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, the second result of Paul's imprisonment was that many believers, not just preachers here, okay? Many believers, or most of the believers in Rome, dared to speak the gospel boldly. I think what's going on here is that these people are inspired by Paul's commitment to Christ. And so they, they start saying things like, you know what, if he can open up his mouth and talk about Jesus, so can I. Our affliction can create increased efforts in evangelism. Now, in order to fully understand what's going on in this text, I think it helps to know what historic moment Paul is narrating in this passage and in the book. At this time in Rome, terror and persecution were on the rise. And Paul's imprisonment, I believe, occurs at the beginning of a great swell of persecution that's going to come crashing down on the church in Rome, on believers there in Rome. So much so that Caesar himself, about 10 years later, will have believers fed to lions, impaled on poles, and used as torches to light the night sky. And so what Paul is saying is that in the midst of all of this evil and violent persecution, God was beginning to stir the hearts of believers to proclaim Christ. God was empowering normal believers to rise above the terrors and the fears of a Roman government and to stand firmly for Christ. But then we, we kind of ask, well, how did God do that? Well, I know it, it, it at least started here. I mean, how do believers get to that point? At least starts initially with God giving boldness to Paul in prison and Paul, Paul's courage being contagious. Other believers being driven by his encouragement. See, believers who are going through affliction must not lose sight of the impact that their testimony will have, not just on the lost, but on other believers. Let me illustrate this. Um, I believe that the true story of, of Hugh Lattimore and Nicholas Ridley early reformers in the church illustrate this concept well. In, in 1555 at Oxford in England, these men faced martyrdom. I first became aware of their story, by the way. I was uh, at the PhD, uh, the place where I'm pursuing my PhD in 
in Melbourne, Australia, and the name of the school is Ridley College. Ridley College. First time I was there, I was walking across the campus. I noticed a large mural painted on the side of the building. It was, a, it was the head, it was a, you know, a replication of the bust or the head of Nicholas Ridley. And right next to it, it says these words, So long as breath is in my body, I will never deny my Lord Christ. And so I began to do some investigation of this Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. During their execution by burning, Latimer turned to Ridley and he said this. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. And we shall this day light such a candle by God's good grace in England that I trust will never be put out. You hear the testimony of these two martyrs that light the Reformation. And even in their affliction, they saw how God might use their affliction and trial to encourage other believers to stand and to declare the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And men and women, may may God give us a mindset that is for the gospel, even when we're going through afflictions and trials. And may we understand that our zeal for the gospel in the midst of those afflictions just may be contagious. Ever met someone who loved to tell people about Jesus? How do you respond to that? Sometimes we're greatly convicted. I mean, this guy's telling people about Jesus all over the place. Might be greatly convicted or we might be challenged. Ah, you know what? I can do that too. I think that's what's going on in Rome here. But what I want you to notice in verses 15 through 17 is that there were at least two different groups of people who were doing this. They were doing this for different reasons. Okay, and we'll go quickly through this. In verse 15, the first part of verse 15, and verse 17, we learn that some were being envious. That's a blank in case you care. Some were being envious and preached Christ with improper motives. Okay, and the way I take verses 15 through 17 is verse 15, the first part, is talking about one group. And then he returns to talk about that group in verse 17. In between it, at the end of verse 15... And all of verse 16 is about group two. So some were being envious of Paul's apparent success. Look in your Bible at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Okay, then skip ahead to verse 17 to continue hearing about this first group. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So some were envious of Paul's apparent success in the gospel and were preaching Jesus. But... Who are these people? When you read about that description in verses 15 through 17, one of the things that strikes me is I just, you know, who in the world are these people? Who, what, what type of believer would degenerate to a place where they're preaching Jesus just to get back at Paul in some way? And so uh, I think there are a few things we can know about them in Philippians. Uh, one thing I would suggest is that these are not the same opponents that you find in Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, Paul calls out a group of Jewish false teachers who were not proclaiming Jesus. They were proclaiming things like obeying the law of Moses, to be said. But in this text, Paul's critique and criticism is not they're proclaiming another Jesus. This text says they are preaching Christ. You see that in your Bible? They are preaching Christ. So their problem is not their doctrine. 
They're orthodox in doctrine. Their problem is not with Jesus. Their problem is with Paul. And for whatever reason, these preachers, I think, in Rome, they don't like Paul. You know, it's very possible for you to be called of God, spirit-filled, spirit-led, empowered by God for Christian service, and still have Christian critics. Use the word Christian in there. Christian critics. Remember just a few years ago, I got word that someone was warning other people about myself and one other professor at Central Seminary. They were going around, different people, worrying about, worrying about us. I suppose that when, it comes, when you start leading a ministry or you engage in a ministry, that we should expect some sort of opposition. But this was shocking to me. And one of the reasons it was shocking to me is because I'd never met the man before. I had never carried on a conversation with him. Yet he's warning people about me. Remember, at first, when I heard this, to be honest with you, uh, my first response was internal, and it was anger. What in the world? Who is this guy? First of all, I don't like anyone not to like me. <laughs> I'm one of those sort of people. Like, what, the world? what did I do to this guy? They did that. And so I struggled with anger. But God in his grace brought me to a place. And it was all work of God. Where And, and you know, remember Dr. Olala was here a few weeks ago. And he said, uh, let the heathen rage. It brought me to a place to say, you know what? You, you serve me. You please me. Let other people say whatever they want to say. But then also where God had to bring me was not just that, but also to a place where I'd say, and if God is using your critic to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. There are two important words that Paul uses to describe these falsely motivated believers. They're full of envy. The word envy is used nine times in Philippians. It's a big word for him. The word envy means that they were jealous. They desired to deprive Paul more than to gain anything for Jesus. They were jealous of him. And they're full of rivalry. You see that in your Bible? They're full of rivalry. Rivalry uh, attempts to achieve more than another person. I want to outwork Paul. I want to achieve more than him. So that we might gain a loyal following for ourselves. Ourselves. There's an old quote by a commentator and theologian by the name of F.B. Meyer that I put in your notes. F.B. Meyer, uh, some 70 years ago or so, made this statement. He said, How many of us, the Lord's servants, are secretly cherishing some proud purpose of excelling other men or making a name for ourselves? By the way, it should be a question mark at the end of that. And we use, listen to what he says, and we use the pulpit as a pedestal for the praise of the world. And we use the cross as a post on which to hang garlands for our own glory. It's very possible for preachers or believers to be in it for the wrong reasons. 
And Paul is wrestling through a group of people who are motivated by envy and by feelings of wanting to generate loyalties to themselves. But these falsely motivated brothers proclaim Christ in Rome with new fervency in order to make a name for themselves. Or to, as the end of verse 17 says, to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. They want to tighten the shackles on his wrists. We'll get to Paul's response here in a moment. But then the second group is, is, is in the middle, verses 15 and 16. Some were sincere and were compelled to preach Christ because of Paul. Look at the middle of verse 15. Uh, it says, uh, But others from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. These other believers with good motivations were proclaiming Christ out of love with pure motives. And the reason they felt so free and so compelled to be able to do this was that they knew God had placed Paul in prison in order that he might defend the gospel of Jesus. You see, at the very end of this verse, the end of verse 16, God is the implied actor. Uh, God put Paul there because God wants Paul to defend the gospel from house imprisonment in the city of Rome. Okay, and these believers understood and knew that. And so uh, they begin proclaiming Christ with fervency as well. And so we've learned these different lessons this morning. We've learned our affliction can create greater exposure for evangelism. We learned, secondly, it can produce increased efforts in evangelism. And finally, verse 18, it also might produce more personal enthusiasm for evangelism or more enthusiasm for evangelism. Look at verse 18. Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, like some of those falsely motivated believers, or in truth, like the sincere ones, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. Paul basically asks in verse 18, what then is my conclusion regarding the advance of the gospel through these sincerely and falsely motivated believers. And he answers it for us. His answer is, here's my conclusion. Either way, Christ is proclaimed. And that brings me joy and more joy. Abundant joy. Sometimes I run across parents in ministry, who are greatly perplexed about how their believing children are choosing to minister the gospel and to participate in church. Remember a long conversation I had with a man in Minnesota about that from this text. You know, they're not dotting all the I's the same way you would. They're not crossing all the T's the same way you would. And he was really wrestling through, what should my attitude be toward my children? as they've grown. And so I asked him a few questions. I first asked him, is their doctrine correct? Is their theology correct? You know, I led led him to say, yeah, yeah, you know, I think, yeah, for the most part, we're like agreeing on like 99% of doctrine. Or 100%. And I asked him, are they proclaiming Christ alone? I said, if they're proclaiming Christ alone, 
we can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in that. Men and women, may God give us eyes for the gospel when we're going through life, interacting with others, or experiencing trials and afflictions in our life. And may our heart, our mindset, be more for the gospel than it is for our own personal comfort. As we conclude this sermon this morning, I want to illustrate the value of one person's witness. In one of his commentaries in the pastoral epistles, John MacArthur tells the story of uh, a Chinese uh, nationalist or extreme nationalist rebellion that occurred in China in 1900. It's called the Boxer Rebellion. Nationalists formed a campaign of terror that they specifically targeted three groups of people, officials of foreign governments, Christian missionaries, and Chinese Christians. One particular scene, after they they surrounded a group of believers, they they held them up all in a station, and they offered them an ultimatum. Uh, They said, uh, we will allow you to leave this room, and uh, we will allow you to go free if you do one thing. Uh, They took a wooden cross, they made a cross out of two sticks, and they put it on the ground just outside of the station, one of the main doors there. And um, they said, what you need to do is, all you need to do is, you need to walk out this room, you need to tramp on that cross, and we'll let you go free. So in the room are approximately 100 believers. Well, the first seven believers in the room, after a short period of time, they walked over to the cross, they tramped on the cross, and they were allowed to go. But the reason MacArthur tells the story is the eighth person who came out of that room was a, a little missionary girl. She wasn't even a teenager yet. And her approach was different. She walked over the cross. She nailed at the cross, prayed a short prayer, stood up, and carefully walked around the cross. And she was shot to death. MacArthur continues to tell the story, the true story, that As a result of the boldness of this little missionary girl, the rest of the people in the room, 92 missionaries, followed her practice. Came over to the cross, knelt at the ground. They had time, they prayed a prayer. They deliberately walked around the cross and were shot. Hearing a story like that motivates all of us. Motivated those believers it motivates us. We might ask, you know, is, is it still possible for one person to make a difference like that? I think it is. I can tell you a story about a young, a young teenage boy. He's 13 years old in, in the youth group that I had in West Virginia. And one day he was just sharing the gospel. He was sharing the gospel in a, in a public restaurant. He's sharing the gospel in the restaurant. He's trying to tell people about what Jesus did for him Along comes by God's good, God's good grace and sovereignty, an elderly deacon from our church. And the deacon hears this 13-year-old boy sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and how much he loves Jesus. And the deacon was broken by his sin. The fact that he hadn't shared Jesus very frequently. And he repented of that sin publicly. He committed afresh and anew to tell other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes when we're faithful to witness and evangelize for Christ, it will motivate other people to do the same. This past week, uh, there was uh, a little bit of an accident just, just down the road at Centerville Elementary School. We had a group of people getting together to tell people about the Good News Club that our ch- church participates in and many of our church leads. It's a great night. I think they passed out over 200 flyers. Well, one of the people who comes to that very faithfully was actually walking into the building. There's an older woman. She slipped and she fell and she broke her arm. And we're praying for her. We're praying for a physical recovery. But may I use that example and the example of all those people who go week after week after week over there. May their desire for souls encourage us all to serve Jesus Christ and to share the gospel. I'd encourage you to write this outline down in the margin of your Bible. Greater exposure, increased efforts, and more enthusiasm. And pray through it. Pray that God would give you the strength through any trial or affliction to advance the gospel. Let's pray together. As we bow our heads in in a moment of quiet reflection, I'll pray momentarily for us. And then I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed as we prepare for the Lord's table. I'll pray for just a brief moment here. And we'll give you about a minute or two to contemplate the sermon, to contemplate your own approach to evangelism, and to contemplate your life as we prepare for the table. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for